Scientist of Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist of Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Katie Stember, who is a graduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome Hello, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Katie, so you study something very interesting. It's uh, an acronym that I do remember, but the full name I have forgotten, so maybe uh, refresh my memory as to what your, your research is focused on. Sure. I study an autoimmune disease called ANCA vasculitis, which is the acronym you're referring to. It's A-N-C-A, and that stands for anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic autoantibodies. Um, so it's a mouthful, but once you sort of understand the disease, the acronym starts to make a little bit more sense. So my guess is we'll get there. Um, Hopefully. We're, yes. we're, we're going we're to go <laughs> as deep as possible. So, <laughs> so let, let's, let's just dissect the acronym. <laughs> so sure. it's anti-neutrophil. And uh, and and there's uh, autoantibodies. Mm-hmm. So usually uh, in in biology, when we talk about antibodies and we say anti something, that usually means that it's an antibody against that recognizes that anti blank. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you the the it's an autoimmune disease. So the body is developing antibodies against neutrophils. To a protein in the cytoplasm of neutrophils, okay. which is where the cytoplasmic piece comes in, okay. in the title. Um, yes, mm-hmm. there, there are actually two subtypes of the disease. One is myeloperoxidase ANCA, and the other is protonase 3 ANCA, and both are proteins located within and moves to the surface of neutrophils under certain conditions, and that's what these antibodies or autoantibodies are reacting to in the disease. So how do these autoantibodies form? Is that something that is known yet or still part of the active research? Um, so autoimmune disease in general is mm-hmm. sort of a black box. We don't know why people get it. We know some of the steps of the pathology of what's happening, but a lot of it is still hypotheses at this point. So what we do know is that B cells and T cells are involved in the adaptive immune response. And one of the things that happens is when you get T cell help with a B cell, if they interact and show each other an antigen, T cells send signals back to the B cells and the B cells become plasma cells that then secrete antibodies that recognize whatever that antigen was during their interaction. So theoretically, if there was a self protein being shown and talked about by these T and B cells, you would then get antibodies secreted to whatever that piece of protein was that they were sort of showing each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, so let's just clarify a piece of that. So what is an antigen actually? An antigen is just a part of a protein, um, however many amino acids long that is recognized by the immune system. So during an infection, that's a great thing because it's how you find pieces of pathogen proteins is that you recognize this little antigenic piece of that and then the immune system spreads it around shows all of its buddies and you know they start an attack um but in autoimmunity that for whatever reason happens with a self protein instead of a foreign pathogen protein right yeah and then uh you also mentioned so it's uh it's a it's a family of autoimmune diseases right anca but so there's also another word that we haven't mentioned yet that you mentioned earlier in your email is vasculitis so that is that a subset of, of this family of disease? So yeah, so vas- vasculitis is uh, itis is inflammation, right? Anything vascular has to do with the blood vessels. So yeah, inflammation of the blood vessels, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how does how does the the specific self proteins that are recognized by the autoantibodies relate to inflammation of blood vessels? 
Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know much about the immune system, uh, the neutrophils are sort of your first line of defense. Um, neutrophils are great because they're everywhere. They're always circulating through the blood system looking for pathogens, looking for something that the immune system needs to react to. So that means you have neutrophils everywhere in your blood vessels. So unfortunately, when you get these autoantibodies binding to neutrophils, these neutrophils get activated. And the way that neutrophils fight pathogens is they essentially just explode. They degranulate, they secrete these nasty contents that kill everything, which is great when you're trying to kill a pathogen, but it also leads to collateral damage. It damages the blood vessels when that happens. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're getting this neutrophil explosion all throughout your blood vessels because they're being activated when they shouldn't be, it leads to vascular inflammation, just like you said, blood vessel inflammation, and eventually damage. Um, so patients often have bleeding into their lungs, bleeding into their kidneys, leak protein into their kidneys um, because of this blood vessel damage that allows things to sort of leak out of the blood vessels. Um, so it's a family of vasculitides depending on different things. People can have different symptoms, which is why we sort of call it a family of diseases. Um, so as I mentioned, some patients tend to have more lung symptoms. Some have solely kidney symptoms. Some people actually have some upper respiratory symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure it's entirely clear exactly what the difference in pathology is that leads to that, the difference in symptoms. Sure. That's something that's definitely still trying to be figured out. So, so back to, to the specific immune response. So uh, you mentioned that uh, neutrophils are circulating in the blood and the, the first line of defense and one of the primary primary way that they work is by exploding the, the pathogen. I think the technical the term is degranulating, but yes. <laughs> Let's go with exploding. Yeah, so, I like it. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, exploding or de degranulating, and that uh, when, it, when it's against uh, a self-protein, it leads to damage of the surrounding tissue of the blood vessel. Can't that also happen when it's, it's a pathogen? Yeah, and, and it so, absolutely so, does. Yeah, so in a in, in essence, our immune system also can damage our own body even while it's fighting off. Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of the reason you feel so crappy when you're sick is because your immune system is fighting so hard and there is this collateral damage going on. Right. So the, the big sort of difference between an infection and an autoimmune condition is one is a very acute Situation. You're getting this damage for a week and then it heals because the inflammation is gone. These neutrophils have stopped exploding. In an autoimmune condition, you have this chronic exposure where every day or every week or whatever, your neutrophils are exploding and so the body doesn't have a chance to heal because you have this constant inflammation process. Right. Um, so people do tend to relapse and remit and we don't really understand, again, what causes mm -hmm. somebody to be in either relapse or remission. We're trying to identify biomarkers for right. those different things, but yeah. again, that's sort of a black box as well. Um, but that's really the main difference is sort of the chronic versus acute exposure right. um, and chronic versus acute neutrophil activation. Right. So in this context of this, this disease or family of diseases, where does your specific thesis research fit in? Yeah, so uh, currently I'm focused just on myeloperoxidase-specific ANCA, um, and part of the reason for that is a lot of work in our lab has figured out, and, and other labs, has figured out which particular piece of myeloperoxidase mm. the immune system might be recognizing. So 
the problem with autoimmunity is currently the only therapeutics that we have for patients are immunosuppressives. They kill off all T cells or all B cells or, you know, they're these nasty medications that while they stop that immune response, they stop the inflammation caused by the disease, they leave you very vulnerable to infection from pathogens. So there's a lot of sort of horrible side effects that go along with these medications. So one of the big theories in the field is if we can figure out the specifics of what's happening in this autoimmune disease, if we can figure out which piece of myeloperoxidase is being recognized by T cells, B cells, the immune system, maybe we can figure out what's different about those cells and target just the pathogenic cells and leave all of the other cells alone. So that's sort of where my thesis comes in is I'm trying to really investigate the specific interaction between a T cell the antigen, which in this case is a piece of myeloperoxidase, and then the antigen-presenting cell that's showing that piece of myeloperoxidase to um, to the T cells. Okay. Um, and I can do that using tetramers, which are a super awesome tool. So, so you've you kind of figured out the the first part you mentioned, which part of the the protein is recognized by the immune system and. Yeah, so there's some evidence from previous work. So there was a graduate student in this lab before, and what she did is she took patient autoantibodies and bound them to myeloperoxidase. Mm -hmm. And then what you can do is you can cleave away the myeloperoxidase that isn't bound to the antibody and then elude off the piece that is bound to figure out which piece of the protein is actually binding to the autoantibodies. And when she did that, you know, several different regions came up, but it just so happened there was one linear region that right around that same time, there's a group in Australia that did a study in mice and they did peptide truncation studies and they you know, gave mice these different kind, different regions of peptide, and they narrowed in on the exact same region oh. that she had identified with her ANCA studies. That's awesome when that happens. Really <laughs> convenient, really yeah. convenient. So yeah. when I came in, we were already very interested in this region. Um, and it's not exactly the same region, but there's a pretty significant overlap of about eight amino acids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started to wonder, you know, is this a they identified it using T cells. So we started to wonder, is this a T cell versus B cell epitope? Um, But regardless, we think it's a very important region in disease. Um, So that's kind of what I did is I'm now taking those pieces of myeloperoxidase and using tetramers, which are essentially synthetic antigen presenting cells and presenting that antigen Mm. to T cells so that I can then get out the T cells and try and figure out what makes those T cells different from ones that aren't recognizing that piece of protein. So where did the idea of tetramers come from? Is that that something that's been established, been around? Um, Yeah, so one thing I didn't really get into is... um, T cells and B cells are part of the adaptive immune system. So neutrophils are part of the innate immune system. They do the same thing every time, regardless of pathogen. They degranulate. The adaptive immune system is very specific in its response because of the interaction that it has with antigen-presenting cells. Um, So people in autoimmunity talk a lot about HLA. Um, And HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. They're the genes that encode MHC receptors. Mm -hmm. And MHC receptors are located on antigen-presenting cells. And then that is what the antigen-presenting cell uses to show pathogenic peptides to T cells. 
And that interaction is very specific to the antigen receptor, um, the MHC receptor itself, to the antigen, and then also to the T cell receptor. So when we say that the adaptive immune system is very specific, it means that every each of those three pieces has to be perfect for anything to happen in terms of an immune response, um, which is great because it allows me to study it. Um, so people, what they've done is a tetramer, like I said, is a synthetic um, antigen presenting cell. So what you do is you HLA sequence the patients, figure out which HLA alleles they have that they're immune, that their T cells can recognize. And then you create a tetramer that has that MHC receptor that would be encoded by the patient MHC. And then you load it with the peptide that you're interested in. And there's studies you can do in silico predictions, in vitro binding, to predict whether or not that peptide will even bind to the MHC you're interested in. So you can do that before making the tetramers so you don't waste all the money. Um, And then once you've done that, you just culture these tetramers like you would an antibody with patient cells. And because they're fluorescently labeled, you can see them by flow cytometry. And then at the same time, you can put other antibodies on the surface of the T cells to figure out are they CD4 T cells? Are they CD8 T cells? And get into sort of the specific T cell subsets and what might make that cell autoreactive instead of, you know, or compared to its counterparts that aren't recognizing the tetramer. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's I, good. <laughs> I, I would love to say that I followed 100% of it, but I think I... I think I am a bit of a more visual learner, so if, if uh, there was a, a diagram or something in front of us that you could point to... I am better at explaining it visually as yeah. well. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I think you're doing a great job. I like how energetic you are. But I, So another question I actually wanted to ask is, how would you compare the ANCA uh, family of diseases to another autoimmune disease like lupus, for example? What, what are the similarities or differences? Yeah, so... The the similarity between all autoimmune diseases is basically what we've already talked about. There's some self-protein that the immune system is recognizing for whatever reason. And the difference between different autoimmune diseases is which protein that is. And where the protein that's being recognized is located determines the symptoms that you're seeing. So, for example, in arthritis, collagen is one of the proteins that gets recognized. It's located in your joints, which is why people get joint inflammation, joint swelling, joint pain, is because your immune system is targeting that protein. Um, In lupus, there's all the double-stranded DNA autoantibody reactivity, and, you know, that leads to a lot of some of the same systemic um, vasculitides and things like that. But I think because those antigens are slightly more ubiquitous, that's why you see such a bigger range of symptoms right. that go along with lupus. Right. It's called systemic for a reason. Right, right. Yeah. exactly. Whereas here in vasculitis, neutrophils are everywhere, which is why there's not necessarily a specific location of the damage, mm-hmm. but the damage is neutrophil and monocyte. I haven't mentioned monocytes because it's kind of the same sure. thing, and yeah. we get more excited about neutrophils for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, but the damage is always due to sort of that mm-hmm. um, source of the autoantigen. Um, so that's where you kind of differentiate yeah. between the diseases. And so when you, I guess, when you first got to UNC, did you know that this is what you wanted to work on, that you wanted to study autoimmune diseases or this specific kind of diseases? Or? Um, no, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, I... 
from previous research experiences and doing lots of things that I found I didn't like, um, I sort of narrowed it down to disease research and disease therapeutics. I knew I wanted to work on something that was going to help humans probably later rather than sooner, but, you know, was Mm -hmm. going in that direction. Um, So when I was rotating in different labs, the first lab I rotated in studied venous thrombosis, um, blood clotting. Uh, The second lab I rotated in studied glioblastoma, which is a really nasty brain tumor. And then, you know, here um, in this lab with vasculitis. But what it really came down to for me is my dad actually has an autoimmune disease. Um, He has psoriatic arthritis. Mm. And so for me... I'd never taken an immunology class in my life and didn't really understand what it meant to have an autoimmune disease. And I figured, you know, maybe something that I do here, even though it's a completely different disease, theoretically could lead to some sort of therapeutic that might help with psoriatic arthritis and help patients like my dad. Um, And, you know, it's been kind of funny now that I've gotten into this, if he's not sure about what a medication does or, you know, what the different symptoms are and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) We have sort of long conversations about the theory behind sort of what is going on with the immune system. So Mm -hmm. I think that has both helped me understand it better and also sort of helped him understand his disease and sort of, you know, why we think people get autoimmunity in the first place. Well, it's amazing to, to have that kind of personal connection to, to, to the research that you're doing. I'm sure it makes it that much more valuable to you and yeah, definitely. maybe gets you more pumped in the morning uh, in yeah. general. And, and I guess having having uh, an, an outlet or, or venue for discussion like that with your dad, for example, or in, in that context, I guess it really helps you to frame things, frame your research in a way that might be more accessible to a wider audience. And speaking of which... You are <laughs> you are the founder and I guess purveyor of the really awesome Facebook page called Scientists of North Carolina, which I highly recommend everybody check out. It's awesome. Uh, where you you profile different scientists in the region, also graduate students uh, yeah. have been on there. You profile different scientists in, in, in the North Carolina area that are are doing. A whole variety of research, uh, different topics, but you tend to focus on things other than the research for now, right? Which I think is great. So, how did you come upon this idea to to do that, and and what's your rationale for, I guess, focusing less on the research and more on the the person? Yeah. Um. So last November, um, around election time, I. I was very disappointed in the way that things went. And I started to realize that a lot of that was because people weren't hearing each other. People weren't seeing each other as human. They were seeing each other as ideas. And people had such aggressive opposition to those ideas that they could no longer understand that the human who had those ideas probably had a reason for it. You know, probably had some experience that was different than your own that sort of led them to that conclusion. And uh, I I was really distraught about that whole thing for a mm-hmm. while. And I was like, you know, how, how could we possibly bridge these enormous divides that are sort of forming between factions of people in the United States um, and all over the country, but specifically in the United States? And I started to think about this this page, this project, Humans of New York, uh, that was started right. by a photographer, Brandon mm-hmm. Stanton. And 
you know, he posts people's stories. He shares people, you know, sharing their own experiences about things that people often have very strong feelings about and very strong opposition toward. And you see these comments of people saying, you know, I had been so against this my whole entire life. And then I saw your story and I got it. And in my mind, the only way to sort of bridge that enormous divide uh, between any sort of people is to connect on a human level. Um, And so for me, it seemed like one of the divides was sort of between scientists and everyone else. You know, scientists over here like facts and logic and blah, 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 and everyone else saying, well, this feels crappy. And, you know, how could we sort of bridge that gap? And so that's sort of where scientists in North Carolina um, fit in, in my mind, as, you know, I've been a photographer for a long time. And I wondered if I could sort of combine my love of science and my love of scientists with photography to sort of try and bridge some of those gaps, try and break down some of the stereotypes around scientists and make them seem more human um, to just try and get those conversations started, get those tough conversations happening um, with people. So that's kind of where it started. Um, it's grown from there um, into lots of other things, but yeah. that's that was the beginning for me. Well, it's great. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's fantastic that you saw a problem and then you actually did something about it right that's kind of the, the scientist in you. yes yeah I, I yeah i feel like uh often it's you you, you see the issue and then oh, it's a bummer that exists what are you going to do but i i think it's it's fantastic that that you actually created the page and you're actually out there and you're talking to scientists and you're getting their stories out there and uh, I mean, it's and it's really nice because you you really, I think you I think you succeed. I think you you really humanize the the person, and, and it's and I and I do agree with you that it's it's a it's a good starting point. And uh, I mean, I, I I guess I I've tried to do something similar <laughs> with, with the with this podcast, but. Yeah. Maybe I'm more of a nerd first, so I tend to focus more yeah. on the science first. And, but then I'll, I'll always try to try to close the episode with a kind of what is this person doing outside of the lab, or what were their life circumstances that led them to the lab, and and uh, if they could I guess, offer any sort of advice or something. And so yeah. for for someone like yourself who is experienced in laboratory research, who studies autoimmune disease, who is interested and very good at science communication, uh, what pieces of advice would you give to, well, I'll ask you about several different groups, but let's start sure. with with uh, young kids, maybe high school age, maybe just starting out in college, and they're thinking about science as a career. What piece of advice would you give them about pursuing a PhD, maybe? What would you say yeah. are some positives or negatives or things yeah. to do, not to do? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is uh, at any age before college, science is not what you think it is. Um, all the way up through high school, science is memorizing the facts. It's reading textbooks. Yeah. And even the experiments that you do are sort of contrived, and there's a right answer. And to me that takes away the fundamental piece of why people go into science. People go into science for the quest, for the adventure, for, 
you know, breaking new ground and answering questions that people have never thought to ask before, much less answer. And so, you know, I think if you've struggled with science or you don't really like science, I would say give it another chance. I would say, you know, a lot of what people love about science is really missing from science early on. And I, I think there are people who are working to change that, um, but I, I don't know how effective that has been so far. Um, and then, you know, you can be a scientist at every level. You don't have to get a PhD to be a scientist. Sure. If you're asking questions and sy- systematically trying to find the answer, you're a scientist, um, you know, whether you wear the lab coat or the nerdy glasses or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, it's really just that quest for knowledge and that that constant quest for learning um, that makes someone a scientist. Right. I would say. Yeah. Nicely put. And, and <laughs> I think the the, the learning aspect, uh, the quest for learning, I, I would totally agree with you that it's completely watered down in, <laughs> in, in just general education throughout high school, and and that the quest for knowledge is much different than it's it's portrayed in in, in high school as a scientist. Yeah, you're. You really are asking the questions that you're interested in and pursuing the answer. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what piece of advice might you offer to someone who is already a scientist, who maybe is pursuing a PhD or is a scientist in another manner, or maybe is already a professor or a faculty member, who is interested in science communication? What would you say to them? I would say that there's no wrong way to do science communication. Um, I think talking about your science to anyone and everyone outside of your little niche area where everyone understands the nuances is great both for whoever you're talking to but also for you. Um, Because I found that when I have to sort of break down my science and explain it to someone who doesn't think about this every day, it helps keep the big picture in mind for me. It help it helps me keep in mind why I'm doing all of this and and why it matters. And in the day to day, when you're doing experiments and they inevitably fail, which <laughs> often happens, or oh, yeah. you know, you do something and you think it's great, and then you find out that you mess something else up. You know, it's the the victories in science are few and far between. Um, so I really found that. Science communication helps keep me motivated um, because, again, it's that reminder of, you know, I'm not coming here every day to pipette the same samples over and over again and hope that I get it right this time. I'm I'm coming here every day and doing all of those things because I I really do want to try and develop a new therapy for patients with autoimmunity. Um, so again, I, you know, talk to kids, sure, that's great. There's lots of available programs for doing that, that you can get involved with. You don't have to sort of go out on your own, but I would also really encourage people to talk to adults, talk to people who maybe have a disease or have something relevant, right. um, that you can sort of put your science in context for that mm-hmm. person. Um, cause again, I think it can be really powerful for both people, yeah. um, when that happens. Sounds like you're saying talk to voters. <laughs> well, potentially, but right. <laughs> get more people to vote and then talk and to voters. Vote. Sure, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so your Facebook page is Scientists of North Carolina. Anyone can find it if you search that on Facebook. And you also have a Twitter. What is your Twitter handle for the page? Uh, it's at scientists underscore of NC. And I'll put that up on the website and so people Great. can more easily find it. But yeah, please, uh, anyone listening... 
check out the page. It's really great. You get to be introduced to such awesome people, and I think Katie does a really cool job of curating that. And, so the discuss bribe was like fifty dollars for you to say all those nice things, or was uh, it? I think was it, it sixty. I think I I, I kind of <laughs> peppered it throughout the entire okay, discussion, right, so right. the 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 fee has gone up. Oh, but, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can talk about that off off yeah. uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. And best of luck with your future research. Thank you very much. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.